Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, Rachel Maddow, Politically Direct, and The Young Turks. Do we need a second Bill of Rights? Do we need a second uh, revolution in the United States? Cass Sunstein suggests so in a book, a new book called The Second Bill of Rights, FDR's Unfinished Revolution, and which is my independent thinker book of the month on buzzflash.com. And this book is grounded in a speech that FDR gave, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave, on January 11, 1944. It was his State of the Union address, the last one he gave. He was dead eight, nine months after he gave this speech. And so... Because he didn't have an opportunity, he didn't have four years to champion his second Bill of Rights. Franklin Roosevelt's, FDR's second Bill of Rights really never got the traction that, frankly, I think it should have and that it deserved. He started out his speech by saying, It is our duty now to begin to lay the plans and determine the strategy for the winning of a lasting peace. This is, you know, as World War II is wrapping up. And the establishment of an American standard of living higher than ever before known. Keep in mind, Franklin Roosevelt brought us the golden age of the American middle class. He said, we cannot be content, no matter how high that general standard of living may be, if some fraction of our people, whether it be one-third or one-fifth or one-tenth, is ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, and insecure. Franklin Roosevelt, in his State of the Union speech, I mean, this was back in the days when presidents were really presidents. When this guy, yeah, this, Franklin Roosevelt, one of the greatest presidents this country has ever had. He said, he went on to say, this republic had its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable, inalienable political rights, among them the right of free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. They were our rights to life and liberty. As our nation has grown in size and stature, however, as our industrial economy expanded, these political rights proved inadequate to assure us equality in the pursuit of happiness. Which, by the way, you find in the Declaration of Independence. Our, our nation, the first in the history of the world to have the word happiness in its founding document. He said, we have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Here's Roosevelt tying together the idea of freedom with the idea of economic security. Again, back to his speech. Necessitous men are not free men. People who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. Might that be why Bush is presiding intentionally, apparently, over the, the, the dramatic increase in joblessness, homelessness, and, and, and hunger in the United States. Anyhow, Franklin Roosevelt. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. We have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station, race, or creed. Among these are, and here's Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights. He said, the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops of farms or mines in the nations. Industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation. The right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. The right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. The right to a good education. All of these rights, said Franklin Roosevelt in his State of the Union address in 1944, all of these rights spell security, and after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for our citizens. Franklin Roosevelt laying out a second Bill of Rights, a proposed Bill of Rights. What happened 
to Franklin Roosevelt's Bill of Rights. Why, why was he unable to implement it? Aside from the fact that he died, I mean, why didn't the Democratic Party carry this forward? Why wasn't Harry Truman, his vice president, who became president when he died eight or nine months after he gave this speech, able to carry forward Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights? And why are Democratic politicians today not talking about it? Last July, uh, the Teamsters, the Service Employees International Union, and a whole bunch of other unions, major ones, um, they decided to break away from the AFL-CIO. They left because they said that the AFL-CIO was focusing too much on on politics and not enough on organizing non-unionized labor. What grew out of that break with the AFL-CIO was a new labor group called the Change to Win Coalition. Change to Win says that unions now need to fundamentally reorient their whole mission into bringing new folks, new workers, new Americans into organized labor. It was the biggest shockwave through American labor politics uh, in a generation at least. Joining us to tell us more about Change to Win is uh, Change to Win's uh, and, and also to learn about Change to Win's first major campaign, which is called Make Work Pay. Joining us today is Anna Berger. Anna Berger is the chair of the Change to Win Coalition. She's also secretary treasurer of the Service Employees International Union. And she joins us this morning as part of our weekly segment sponsored by the SEIU uh, to tell us more about the Change to Win unions and how they're approaching organizing labor. I think that our um, Change to Win unions came together in September at our founding convention, and since then it's been an incredibly exciting opportunity for us to work together, to strategize together, to really change the way that we approach organizing workers. Is the idea, is the strategic difference between uh, the old way and the new way uh, that, that leaders from one union, from one sector, from one type of employment uh, will now start working on organizing efforts for totally different types of workers? Is that the big strategic change? Well, I think that what we're doing is we're saying that we're willing to give the support of our unions to each other to help them organize their industries. And we're also looking at industries as a whole. You know, the world has changed. Corporations are now global. We believe that we need to look at um, corporations in a different way and that we need to really think about what the pressure points are on them and we develop relationships with unions in other parts of the world as well so that we really can um, bring workers' voices, um, make it loud enough so that we can bring pressures to bear on employers to do the right thing. What are some of the pressure points that affect big global corporations? Well, you know, if you think about it, um, right now we're doing a campaign for school bus drivers between the Teamsters and SEIU. It's a joint campaign. It turns out when after we had been organizing the bus drivers for a while, it turns out that the bus company was actually owned by a corporation in the U.K. And the U.K., they respected workers' rights to have a union. And so it seemed to us that it makes sense to actually go to the U.K. and work with the unions there to put pressure on them in their home country about having the same standards that they have in the U.K. in the United States. Wow. And so there are strategies like that, you know, standing up with our unions in other parts of the world to organize global security companies. You, the, the shudder that you hear in the background is CEOs everywhere realizing that a strategy like that could be really, really scary for people who resist the idea of, of workers getting it together, of, of workers organizing. I mean, that um, really is hitting fundamentally at, uh, the, at the difference between workers' power and, and corporate power. If workers really got it together not only across industries but across countries that could really change stuff yeah it could change it could change things for workers all around the world and we think that it's important to think about how we do that you know the truth is our unions believe in the american dream it means that if you work hard you play by the rules you can have a better life you can actually support a family on one income you can win health care and retirement security and give your kids a better life that's the american dream but the reality is in the last you know 25 years the economic divide in our country has been getting greater and greater and you know see profits are up ceo salaries are up worker productivity is up but workers um, wages are stagnant people are falling falling behind we think that we could as a country come together you know we're asking our employers to come to the get together we're asking elected officials to come together let's solve these problems together we however will put the spotlight on and turn up the heat on corporations who are irresponsible who refuse to give workers a decent life because we think that it's only fair for workers to be able to um, have a decent life to be able to support their kids and give their kids a better life it's the american dream you know you know i think that uh, and we just played the audio of the the new make work pay advertisements that you guys are running and i, I do want to talk about that but i think what you're saying right now and the way those ads are running 
I feel like the common wisdom about workers and what people get paid in this country is kind of changing. And and I think that you guys are at the you guys are the pivot point for people's new understanding of what workers ought to be paid in this country, because it's it's been the mantra for the last 15 years that, oh, you know, unions are old economy and the new American economy. We can't afford unions anymore because that ties us to the policies of the past. But you know what? People are that's not the common wisdom anymore. People are really, really mad about Lee Raymond from Exxon getting four hundred million dollars when he left. You know, people are really mad about the CEO pay stuff and it's just it, it i think the common wisdom is changing with the idea that, that that regular working folks you know can't afford to be paid a decent salary right i mean think about target the ceo of target gets paid 45 million dollars a year right. and his workers live in poverty is that right no i don't think so I mean, people are outraged across the political right. spectrum about that and the truth is corporations can be profitable and treat their workers fairly all at the same time yeah it's not one or the other What's the business argument for doing the right ethical and moral thing there? What's the business argument for treating workers more There are lots of union companies that are profitable, corporations that are, have unions that are profitable, and understand that when they have workers who have a decent life, their turnover is lower, their productivity is higher. Um, so it's good for the company and it's good for the workers. The new ad campaign, Make Work Pay, um, why, um, I, I understand that MSNBC and Comedy Central both said that they would not run that ad. And, and I heard that newsflash before I ever heard the ad. Then when I heard the ad, the ad doesn't seem that controversial to me. What's their point? Oh, I don't know. Ad? Maybe they're embarrassed by their CEO's salary. <laughs> it, it, it kind of surprised me. That's not the answer that they gave you, though. They claim that, that, that they don't want to issue ads. That's what they claim. Hmm. I think we're going to talk to the SEC about this. That's interesting. The uh the, the the make work pay campaign. This is the first big campaign of the Change to Win Coalition. What are the goals of this campaign? We um, are actually in 40 cities this week around organizing campaigns, whether it's around Walmart initiatives like the Big Box Initiative in Chicago, or janitors organizing in Norristown or the ports in um, in LA. It's all about organizing campaigns and giving workers a voice so that they can have their work be valued and paid for again. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the beginning of a campaign. It's not a one week of activity. It's a beginning of launching a series of campaigns to really turn around and organize the 50 million workers in our country who are doing work that's not going to be offshore. They're driving trucks. They're building buildings, guarding buildings, securing buildings. They are picking crops, serving food, preparing food. They're cleaning hotels. They're, you know, the jobs that are going to be here. They're driving school buses. Um, those are all jobs, 50 million of them that are in this country, and there's no reason why they shouldn't be decent jobs. You know, 50 years ago, working in a coal mine wasn't a great job. Um, it just paid great wages when the union was able to, when the workers were able to have a union and a voice. Mm-hmm. Being on an assembly line, turning one bolt after another bolt after another bolt, wasn't inherently a valuable job. It became valued when the workers had a voice to force their employers to value that job. And, you know, that's, I think, the thing that, that, that I feel like is really politically important about this campaign, because it's not only about organizing these individual groups of workers or these individual corporations in these individual towns and cities across America. It's about changing the political debate about how we understand workers' rights in this country and making it say, making a case to say, you know what, as Americans, we don't think the CEO pay thing is okay. And as Americans, both economically and morally and in terms of our values, we think that there ought to be a middle class. And you ought to be able to support your kids if you're working a hard job. And, you know, that that that's basic fundamental values in political talk that uh, that that I think is going to make the difference uh, in, in this type of campaign, getting people behind the politics of it, whether or not they know anything about the individual campaigns in their town. I think it's an exciting prospect. Anna Berger is the chair of the Change to Win Coalition. She's the secretary treasurer of the SEIU. Anna, thanks for talking with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Before we break, uh, I want to play for you a little bit of sound from that Make Work Pay campaign ad. This is the, uh, this is the ad that's been rejected by Comedy Central uh, and by MSNBC. Check it out. Here it is. They don't have golden parachutes or stock options. They don't have vacation homes or fly on the company jet. They are the tens of millions of hardworking Americans. And while their company's profits get fatter and fatter, and their CEOs get richer and richer. Workers get left farther and farther behind. Don't let America's middle class vanish. It's time to make work pay. It doesn't sound too controversial to me. 
I have to say, but apparently that was too hot to handle for MSNBC and for uh, Comedy Central. Uh, we put a link to the Make Work Pay campaign website at our website, which is mattoonline.com. The world's locked up in your head. You've been pouring it a concrete bed. You have it. News coming out of West Virginia. This is extraordinary. This is totally tragic. Now, keep in mind as you're as you're listening to this that in Canada, all of the miners have a safe room. All of the miners have an oxygen supply. All of the miners can get out safely in Canada. Here we have Buckhannon, West Virginia, trapped deep below ground by poisonous gases. The Sago miners realized at least four of their air packs did not work and were forced to share the devices as they desperately pounded away with a sledgehammer in hopes of letting rescuers know where to find them, the sole survivor says. He says, Randall McCloy Jr., the only guy who survived, he said, as my trapped co-workers lost consciousness one by one, the room grew still, and I continued to sit and wait, unable to do much else. He said there were not enough rescuers, that's the air packs, to go around. He said he shared his air pack with one man, and three other miners sought help from others. This is really tragic. He finally, he says, uh, we found a sledgehammer for a long time. We took turns pounding away. We had to take off the rescuers in order to hammer as hard as we could. This effort caused us to breathe much harder. Martin Jr. Toller, 51, and Tom Anderson, 30, 39, made another last-ditch attempt, but they had to come back. So he says, Jr. Toller led us all in the sinner's prayer. McCloy says the, the air behind the curtain grew, grew worse. He said, some drifted off in what appeared to be a deep sleep. One person sitting near me collapsed and fell off his bucket, not moving. It was clear I could do nothing to help him. He says, the last person I remember speaking to was Jackie Weaver, who reassured me that if it was our time to go, then God's will would be fulfilled. This is a non-union mine. Brags about it on their website, that they use bankruptcy to bust the union. In Canada, they're all unionized. They all have safe rooms. What's wrong with this picture? now is Alan Van Capel, who's the executive director of the Empire State Pride Agenda, which is working uh, in New York State for gay and lesbian rights. Thank you uh, for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Let me ask you specifically, one of the focuses uh, in New York State has been on the issue of marriage. We've seen the demonization of marriage on a national <coughs> level. It was certainly it played a huge role in uh, the 2004 elections. Walk me through, what is it that you're doing here that actually all of us should be looking at nationally? Well, I think there's two things uh, that we've been doing. One, we've been educating our community about the issue of marriage and the fact that there are 1,500 different rights and responsibilities that come with a marriage license. The other thing we're doing is we believe that gay folks don't win the right to marry if it's only gay people talking about it. And we think that New Yorkers' opinions are shaped where they work, where they pray, in their union halls. And if we can change the conversations that are taking place there, then we'll change the conversations that New Yorkers are having at their kitchen tables about marriage. And so, for example, uh, the Pride Agenda created a program called Pride in the Pulpit. We had been hearing for a while how folks were nervous about the religious right. They were angry that the religious right had taken control of the pulpit, and they were defining our families, dismissing our communities, uh, and, and preaching hate and religious-based bigotry from the pulpit. And when we went up to Albany and spoke to our legislators, our legislators would say, sometimes not the bravest people in the world, would come and say, look, you know, I'm going back home and I'm hearing from these ministers in my district that I'm supporting gay rights and they're threatening to take their support away from us. Well, we saw that play out in Ohio Absolutely. with John Kerry. Absolutely. So what we said was, look, there are more religious clergy and congregations supporting our community in New York State than are opposed to them. We've just never done a good enough job of organizing them. So today there are over 600 religious leaders in 300 congregations, 20 different denominations across New York State who are standing with the gay and lesbian community, uh, many of whom are in support of marriage. They've taken full-page ads out in newspapers, you know, calling for the legislature to end discrimination against gays and lesbians. They've signed on to amicus briefs and some of the marriage litigation taking place around this state. And most recently, when we suffered a defeat in one of the mid-level courts on a marriage case, it wasn't gay people that were putting out press statements and press releases about how we were upset about the court decision, but it were religious people talking about how they were upset that the state wasn't treating us 
equally. And that changed how reporters wrote about the decision. Rather than write about the decision as being, you know, gays lose on marriage, the conversations across the state were big division in religious communities on gay marriage. Now, I'm going to guess that some of the uh, Baptist evangelical pulpits have not joined in this. Maybe some of the most orthodox Jewish groups have also not joined in this. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, have taken the lead both here and nationally, in fighting gay marriage. How do you make inroads there, or do you? Do you just agree that that's never going to be a possibility? What we've been doing is we've been finding pockets of support. People who've been supporting our community for 20 years, but like good progressive people, they just usually do it in a very quiet way sometimes. They say it's the right thing to do, and they don't really publicize it. What we're doing is giving them a platform, a vehicle to let other people know that there are congregations who are supporting our community. And are you finding that in these rural, more conservative parts of upstate New York as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that brings me to the question of the state's junior senator. And you famously at now, at least certainly within the gay community, have had an experience of questioning her unwillingness to come forward. Now, one of the things that Hillary Clinton has been admired for as in her campaign as having gone upstate and where she was not well received initially and listening to the constituents. Mm -hmm. She did a listening tour. She clearly is doing that again now as she's running for re-election. We had her on this program, and I asked her flat out why she was supposed she to marry. She was our first guest, and it was, I was not satisfied with the answer then. I'm not satisfied with it now. So I applaud you know, your willingness to say that it is not an acceptable answer for people who are supposedly friends of this community. But having said that, is she not hearing from those constituents, and is she contending that her position, which is for civil unions but not for marriage, reflects broadly the constituency that she represents well first of all let me say that i think that hillary clinton has championed things in the gay community absolutely but you know there's always the but you know i'm disappointed and i've heard from a lot of constituents you know our constituents across the state that they're upset that our senator in a state like new york isn't for marriage but is instead for civil unions what upsets me most of all is her support of the defense of marriage act I think we have to move past being able to support a, a bill like the Defense of Marriage Act. I accept that she might not be there for marriage yet and might be for civil unions. It's a position that in our last poll a year ago, 72% of New Yorkers favored civil unions when only 51% of New Yorkers favored marriage. So I understand that you know, that's the majority opinion right now in the state. But it's 10 years since DOMA was passed. And I think we have to move past people supporting something like the Defense of Marriage Act. We have to evolve from it. Now, I think she's trying to do a good job of listening. I was invited down last week. Or two you had a meeting with other Democratic senators, That's right, right? for part of the Senate Steering Committee, and we talked about this issue. And what I think we have to have from legislators, from corporate leaders, from labor leaders, from religious leaders, from our own parents and friends who have been supportive of our community, is we have to have an understanding with them that if they oppose something, that's okay, but they have to do it in language that's affirming. And what I find upsetting is that some of the people who call us their friends, and I'm taking specific personalities out of this, when we're vilified, you know, by the religious right, when we're vilified by conservative Republicans and made to be the scapegoats for all the world's problems, that they're nowhere to be found, these sympathetic voices saying, you know, gay people just aren't like this. I would rather our friends look into the television cameras or the people who say they're our friends and say, you know what, I know gay people. They're my constituents. I've had dinner with them. They're in my family. They're good, productive people. They're on my staff, and they aren't those things that you say they are. And far too often, I feel like when our communities attacked, we look around to see where our people who say they're our friends are, and they're nowhere to be found. And I think what we're trying to do now is to send them a message that that's no longer going to be an acceptable position for this community. Good this for isn't, you. This isn't 1996. This is 2006. Marriage is not a dream for New York. It could be a reality in a very short period of time like our neighbors in Massachusetts. And at the moment when our civil rights movement is at its apex, that's when we need people to be standing up, and we want people to be on the right side of history on this. You know, there's never a right time 
for civil rights struggles. It's always the right time for civil rights struggles. And if there's a reason today why it's not right to have a civil rights struggle, I promise you in five years from now, there'll be another reason that somebody will say we shouldn't be fighting for gay marriage in five years from now. And in 2015, they'll say, well, you know, there shouldn't be a reason why you should be fighting at this time. There's never going to be a right moment. And this is never going to be a conversation that's going to be comfortable for a majority of Americans. And our job is not to convince Americans that gay people should get married. It's to convince Americans that they don't care if gay people should get married or not, that this isn't a big deal in their life, but it is to our life, and it is to the people who we love and whom we care about. We're short on time. I want to ask you, it seems to me this is also a generational issue. Mm. You know, as you have a vision for the future, and for as you see younger Americans addressing this issue, how do you see it playing out? My sense is that it is a sea change as you move to younger and younger Americans who feel, as you've just described, that this is really something that doesn't affect their lives, but they care about the fact that it can hurt other people. That's right. I, I think you're right on that. You know, if, uh, you know, time is on our side, um, but I'm 31 years old, and I don't want to have to wait 30 more years to have the same rights and benefits that my twin sister Lynn has when she got married last year. She'll now have 1,500 things that myself and my partner Matthew don't have because she's entitled to a marriage license and we're not entitled to a marriage license. And maybe it's my generation. You know, I'm 31. I'm impatient. I want things now. Maybe that was the 80s, right? Me, me, me. But I want my rights now, and I don't want to have to wait 30 years for them. And one of the things that I hope that you know, not only your listeners, but elected officials who will be listening understand that when someone comes to them and talks about the environment, when someone comes and talks to them about education, they're sitting across the table from somebody who's equal to them. When I go to an elected official, when I go to the majority leader or the, Senate or the assembly speaker, when I go to a Senator Clinton or a Senator Schumer and talk about why I believe I deserve the same equal rights, I'm sitting across the table from somebody whose government gives them 1,500 more rights than they give me. And I have to ask them for those civil rights. And it is really powerful, uh, powerful um, feeling uh, to not have the dignity uh, that someone else has that comes with equal rights. And I hope that people understand that, you know, gay people might be in some considered upwardly mobile, uh, and there might be some of us who are well off and some of us who are less well off. Uh, and we might seem like happy people lots of times with children and baby carriages and present ourselves like everybody else, but nothing feels as good as the dignity that comes with equality. And I want to feel that same thing, too. Ellen Van Capel, thank you for, uh, for articulating that so well. And thank you for joining us on Politically Direct. Thanks for having me, David. Let's go to Steve uh, in Tennessee on line one. Hey, Steve. Hey, how you doing? Great, man. So, hey, I, you know, I'm talking about this gay marriage. I'm kind of wishy-washy on it. I just give them all the rights. Just call it something else is uh, is all I want. But Steve, why? Who that's, cares? That's not the same why? thing. Why? Come on. I mean, I know you got the big separation of church and state, but marriage, for the most part, for 80% of us has a religious connotation, too, so just call it something else, and I'm fine with it. Plus, you're going to run into problems with having preachers having to marry people, gay people, whether it's against their religion or not. Now, I'm not saying whether, I'm not getting into a theological argument here, but there's religions that they can't marry you, they won't marry you, and being gay is not just one of them. There's Catholic Church won't marry you if you marry a non-Catholic, for example. Well, okay, then, Steve, then, then for someone like me who doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in religion, then I shouldn't be allowed to, to participate in the union of marriage. But why, why do I still get to get married? Okay, I mean, I'm not saying there's not holes in my argument. I mean, there's holes in yeah, every argument. there's giant holes in your it. argument because you're discriminating between two people that are exactly the same. They just like well, a different sex. Well, no, I'm just saying, look. Right, I'm against the constitutional amendment unless the courts force us to, right? Because times might change. You might get you might get above fifty percent, right? I'm not, and I don't want to restrict future generations from maybe correcting a wrong. I don't know. I'm open to being wrong, but maybe correcting a wrong, right? I just don't want the courts to force us to do it. And the only way I would support a constitutional amendment is if the courts force us to.
All right. Well, I'm let me address that in a couple of ways. First, thank you for real, calling, Steve. Real Steve, I'm glad you're open to be wrong because I hope you realize how stupid you sound right now in five years. I mean, there should be no. I mean, I love how you say you should give gay people all the same rights. But wait, not the marriage right. That doesn't count because that's under God. God still doesn't see them as real people. But okay, as a country, we'll recognize them as as real people. No, that's absolutely. I mean, and and look, I mean, marriage is marriage, whether you call it a union or or a civil union or or a marriage. It's all the same thing two people that want to form a life together and be protected legally here's a very important distinction steve if you say to me look i don't want you forcing my churches to conduct ceremonies they're not uh they don't believe in i'm a hundred percent with you i agree with you you shouldn't force any church or temple or any other organization to conduct a, uh, a union a marriage whatever you want to call it that is against their principles uh, that's why the church and state should be separated but as far as legal rights that the state gives you that the government gives you you can't make an argument that hey my religion says that I don't believe in this kind of union so our government should not give you the same rights that uh, that straight people get because my religion is not into it my religion is not into it is not a legitimate argument that is that's a great argument if you're in church but if you're in government and we need to run a, a government that operates on logic and reason and something we could all agree to. And your religion says one thing, that dude's religion says another, and the people who aren't religious say another. We have to have a rational basis for our laws, and my God says so is not a rational reason. Right, and I mean, there's thousands of people that get married all the time who are not religious people, and they're allowed to say they've gotten married, not that they've gotten unionized. It doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, there's I no give a rat's difference. Ass, I could give it a rat's ass what they call it. I don't care what they call it. As but long as everybody has the same marriage rights. for everyone else in the United States, then gay people should be allowed to participate in marriage. You yeah. don't give it another name. Like you give black people another drinking fountain because, oh, they're allowed to drink water too. They just can't drink water from the same water fountain that we drink from. I, Jill makes a really good point. A lot of what I hear from Steve and others uh, on that side is beginning to sound like exactly what we heard during the Civil Rights Movement. No, 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 no. I just don't want the courts to get involved and tell us that we got to have the colored people, you know, in our restaurant. Look, we'll give the colored people their rights whenever we feel like it, but I don't want the courts involved. No, but that's the job of the courts, to protect the liberties of Americans and of minorities. In that case, it happened to be uh, uh, black folks. In this case, it happens to be gay folks. And you say, well, but separate but equal. You keep them over there, and we'll stay over here, and it'll be fine. No, everybody gets the same rights. That's the core principle of America. And if you don't get that, then I agree with Sherrod Brown and Paul Hackett and Russ Feingold. You're on America. The problem is all inside your head needs to be. Seems like you're dreaming as you're listening to me We all must rise up now and keep our country free There must be 50 ways to dump the W Now it's really never been my habit to intrude That it don't take a rocket scientist to see we're being screwed So just raise your voices, don't be afraid of being rude Outside the courthouse door And I wonder every night Who it stands for anymore They say that it's gonna be cheaper to make them in China They'll stitch them and ship them back here in some big ocean liner Become of this small town in South Carolina. Well, they're just toast. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Small the small town in South Carolina, the small town in Michigan, the small town in California, the small town in Texas, the small. They're toast. 22 minutes past the hour. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I just wanted to wrap up this thing that we started the program with the discussion about the idea of a second bill of rights this is this is such a such an important concept i don't want to just you know let it let it not be finished it's franklin roosevelt 
1944, his last State of the Union address, he had just been reelected as President of the United States. He was, he would be dead within the year. He was winning the war in Europe and Japan. The World War II. He was winning World War II. And, you know, the final months of World War II. And in his January 11th State of the Union address to the nation, he laid out this second Bill of Rights. And he said, the second Bill of Rights includes the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide food and adequate food, and food clothing, and recreation. In other words, you can take a vacation. You can, you can eat. No more hunger in America. The right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a decent price. The right of every business person, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. And the right to a good education. Now, the conservatives have a somewhat different take on this. Oh, by the way, I, I forgot to mention, Jody Evans, who was just with us from Code Pink, CodePinkAlert.org, wanted me to mention, on May 14th, Mother's Day, at the White House, there will be a 24-hour vigil uh, that Code Pink is, I'm not sure if they're uh, organizing it or taking part in it, but you can learn more about it at CodePinkAlert.org. And you know, they're asking people to participate and, and, and know about it. 24 hours, May 14th, the White House. Now, the conservatives suggest that laissez-faire economics, that you know, so-called free market economics, can only function or mean that because the government has, because there are what are called negative rights in the Constitution. For example, you have the right to have freedom from government interference, freedom of speech, Freedom from the government preventing you from speaking. Freedom of assembly. Freedom from the government preventing you from assembling. Freedom, you know, freedom of privacy. Freedom from the government in, intruding into your privacy. For example, the, that, that these are what, they, what the cons call negative rights. They say these are things where the government can't do anything. But the reality is that these are all areas where the government must do something. These are actually affirmative or positive rights. The government has mandated that it must prevent itself from reading our mail, listening to our phone calls. It must pass laws that enforce that. And those laws have to be passed by the legislature, and they have to be on the books, and they have to be positive and proactive, and there have to be police departments and, and the FBI, things like that, that will enforce those laws by the government, against the government, to protect we the people from the government. And there must be courts in which those laws can be adjudicated. And there must be jails where politicians who break those laws or members of, the, of, the, of, the, of the, any employee of the government who breaks those laws can go to jail. That these are all, that these must be there. So this is the government taking an active role. This is active liberty, to paraphrase Stephen Breyer, the United States Supreme Court Justice. This is the, this is the government taking a proactive role. All of these so-called negative rights actually require government in order to exist. So it's not a stretch to say, therefore, we can say also that there are what are sometimes referred to as the positive rights. The right to a job. And if private industry won't provide that job, government will, as Roosevelt did during, with the Works Progress Administration, with the WPA and the Civilian Conservation Corps of the CCC and, and other programs. That there is a right to a reasonable level of pay. That there is a right to unionize. That there is a right to universal health care. That you have the right to have a retirement safe and from the fears of old age or sickness. That you should be... F- free from the fear of unemployment. And this is what Roosevelt laid out in 1944 in his, in his State of the Union address in January of 1944. He said, this is the new Bill of Rights, the new American Revolution. And in my opinion, it's time for us to pick that mantra up again and, and go back and say, you know, FDR had it right. Franklin Roosevelt had it right. And we do want a new Bill of Rights. And we do want to move forward. Did I say Reagan? I may have. I, I met Roosevelt. I'm sorry. And we, we do need to pick up this Bill of Rights and go forward with it.
thanks for listening, everybody. Now, hold on. Just wait a second. If you are one of those people who, you know, listens to my show, but then turns it off right when I start talking, first of all, I don't blame you. But second, for God's sake, don't do it this time, because I've got some things to say, and you're going to want to hear it. First, I have some bad news. But then, I have some great news. And then, I have some overwhelmingly exciting news. So I'll start with the bad news, so that you can have the good news to look forward to. Um, All of this happened yesterday. And so, the reason that I even bring up the bad news is because it seemed very fitting for me that in the midst of all of these good things happening, something bad had to happen just to kind of even things out. My iPod is on the fritz. That That's the bad news. Um, I don't know what I did to it. It just all of a sudden, you know, it, I have to reboot it all the time. It's, it's crazy. So I, I don't know. I'm going to my next step is to reformat the disk and reload everything onto it, and hopefully that fixes the problem. But I'm kind of bummed out about that. Now for the great news. Just yesterday, which was Wednesday, uh, I don't know the date, um, I found out that... Now, hold on. Keep in mind, this isn't even the best news. Yeah, keep that in mind. Yesterday, I saw that my show is now featured in iTunes on the uh, news and politics section of the homepage, which is fantastic. I'm totally excited about that. I give full credit to the people who went in and wrote reviews. I haven't talked about it in a while because I, you know, I told you I was going to do that review campaign. It was for... Uh, April, because I thought that that would be a nice, uh, you know, birthday present to throw myself, and um, and you guys pulled through, and it took a couple of weeks for Apple to kind of get their act together, and you guys helped them notice me, or helped me get noticed by them, I think is a better way of phrasing that, <clears throat> and and so I'm I'm featured, and I'm totally stoked about that. So thank you very much. Um, you know, I I might as well renew my my urge to all of you if you haven't already to subscribe through iTunes. I think just the act of of clicking the subscribe button in iTunes sends them a little signal, a little "I love this show" signal, and if they get enough of those, then they bump you up in the ranks and things like that, and then I'll get posted on the actual homepage, not just in the news and politics section. Anyway, so if you want to do that, that would be great. Um, I have a lot of new listeners now who very likely weren't listening in uh, April. So for all of you, if you want to go and leave reviews in iTunes, I'm not going to argue with that. I would be totally excited about it. Yeah, no, I know what you're thinking. Wait a second. What's the news that's better than that for a guy who does a podcast and has good news to give out, you know. Well, I've got a project that I've been working on, and as is my style, I'm going to be letting you in under the hood of the project because I know how exciting that is for outsiders to hear how things work and how things get done. And, um, you know, so, you know, normally I'm just talking about, um, you know, in in what way did my software crap out on me this week? But, uh, and that's, you know, that's the under the hood information you get. But t- today, no, no, no. Today, I'm explaining the new media revolution. And this is how it went. Jack Clark... He runs the Blast the Right podcast, uh, you know, probably one of the um, original and, and most well-known independent liberal podcasters. You know, he like 
advertises on Google and everything, so you, you, you can hardly look up podcasts without stumbling over his show. So maybe a month ago, maybe six weeks, I don't know how long ago it was, he had just the brilliant idea to create a, um, a, a section of his website was just going to be dedicated to a progressive-slash-liberal podcasters directory. And he sent out emails to all the podcasters that he had worked with in the past and, you know, just anyone whose email address he had. And so myself and, and about 15 other podcasts all submitted our, you know, links to our websites and, you know, promos and things like that. And so we all kind of got consolidated in one place. And he wrote a little note at the top of the page that said, hey, let's all play each other's promos so that we can all help, you know, increase each other's audiences and it'll be a great big liberal love fest. And so that was great. And, you know, I signed up immediately and was very excited about it. And then some time went by and I had what I consider to be the best idea I've had since I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if somebody would put together a show where they just took all the best clips from liberal radio and put it all together in one place so that it was easy to listen to when, you know, you only have a limited amount of time and there's about 17 shows you'd like to hear, but you just can't get around to all of them. So anyway, well, you know what happened to that idea. And uh, I'm considering this to be possibly better than than that original idea, but at least the best idea I've had since then. And this is what it was. I contacted all of the people on that list and proposed that we do what I called a good old-fashioned liberal-style unionizing of all of our podcasts and, you know, get together and talk about marketing plans and, you know, really actively, you know, not just exchange promos to play on each other's shows, but if, if we just create a single page, which Jack had already done, that was the whole point, if we just have one page with one website, um, you know, with one address that people can go to, then they can find all of our podcasts. And not only that, they can know that, you know, we're all kind of in this together and, uh, you know, strength through unity, basically. And so I sent out an e email to all those people, and the response was, as you might imagine, very enthusiastic and people got excited and people started throwing out you know new ideas and stuff I'd never thought of and you know we can you know take this can be the start of something big and you know we can make a store and sell stuff and we can all get together and oh it was it, it was lovely so anyways um, that's what we did. And, uh, now, well, don't get too excited. We're on version 1.0, barely. You know, it's, it's pretty beta right now. But, but what we have is the, uh, the website that Jack Clark originally created. And what we're doing now is, first of all, announcing that this website exists wholeheartedly encouraging you to go to it. I'll give you the address in a minute. And also encouraging, well, for, you know, podcasters, go there and sign yourself up. If, if you want to be a member of the group, by all means, you know, if you're doing a liberal podcast, we want you there. Um, and also, since, uh, since we're just kind of getting this underway, we're throwing around ideas, we're thinking of you know, what to do and where to go and how to run it and how to build a fancy website and, you know, maybe we'll expand and include, you know, blogs and vlogs and podcasts and 
every aspect of what I mentioned at the very beginning, the new media revolution that we are all in the midst of at this very moment, and we are all a part of just by the virtue that I'm talking right now and you're listening, although not in not in live time, but you all you all get that. So we're also encouraging anybody who wants to help out on the project uh, in any way you like. Ideas, uh, you know, efforts, volunteer your time, anything like that. We'd love to have you, basically. I mean, if, if you have got experience building websites or marketing or anything along those lines, that's what we're going for right now. This is... Uh, you know, it, it has the potential, you know, of course, you know, my original idea, it just was something like, we'll create, you know, a promo to pass around to everyone, and it'll all direct to this centralized website with all of our promos listed, so people can just go to one place and find all of us, and that took about three and a half minutes to expand to why don't we just go ahead and make a world-class one-stop shop hub for the entirety of the new media revolution that we should start? And I thought, well, hey, that, you know, I can dig that. So, anyways, that's the plan. So, your job now, as an interested listener go to the website. As a podcaster, go to the website and sign up. As an interested listener who wants to help, go to the website, check out what we've done, and then contact me, or basically anyone on the list, but, you know, since you're listening to me, uh, go ahead and contact me, and, uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get you set up. Lickety split. So, here's the big announcement www.newmediarevolution.org version 1.0. That's not part of the address, but I like to give that caveat so that you understand that when you go there, it's not, um, you know, flashy and, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not fancy, but it gets the job done for now and, and we're working on it. And, uh, so that's it. I, I don't know, have you ever gotten to the end of an of a big announcement and uh, you feel like you kind of blew your whole load too early and you don't have a strong point to end on? Yeah, yeah, no, me either, but wouldn't that suck? So anyways, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't checked out Godless Kinzer yet and his Let It Burn, no, I'm sorry, Watch It Burn, uh, podcast, well, then I don't know what you're doing with your life, but let me introduce you to him right now. This podcast is a member of the Progressive Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, go on over to NewMediaRevolution.org, where you'll find other like-minded podcasts and soon blogs and vlogs. Progressive Podcast Network at NewMediaRevolution.org. Variety is the spice of life. Oh. And have a good one, everybody.